And we're back for episode 85 of the Dawson D Show, and today we bring to you another great interview with the fantastic Paul Kennedy. Paul Kennedy is a journalist, an author, and a television presenter best known for his some 14 years with the ABC News Breakfast. We were so privileged to sit down and spend some time with Paul as he shared some real insightful gems of wisdom that he's discovered throughout his life. We chatted about his latest book, Funky Town, which is his memoirs reflecting on his teenage years growing up in Frankston, Victoria. And boy, did that open up a can of worms. We talked about the macho culture he experienced growing up, which led to excessive drinking, pub brawls, sexual ideology, and even getting expelled from high school in year 12, when really all he wanted to do was play professional football, find love, and live a good life. So many of the experiences Paul faced back then rings true in today's society as we talked about toxic masculinity and how it can be defined, which really opened our eyes. Paul's journalism career is pretty impressive too, working at the Herald Sun, Network 10, Channel 9 and the ABC, just to name a few. Paul reflected on how he got into journalism and the path he took to get there which wasn't the norm. It's a great story of perseverance and proactivity which you're going to absolutely love. He also shared some insight into his coaching philosophy and why he teaches his players not to fear failure, a pattern he's experienced throughout his life. Guys, this interview is only short but it's so powerful and we can't wait to chat with Paul again for part two. But without further ado, here's our interview with the great Paul Kennedy. Welcome to the Dawson D Show. Two great mates striving to improve in all areas of their lives. The podcast is designed to empower everyday humans just like us who want to add more joy, energy and happiness into their daily lives. Sharing our real life experiences and everyday struggles, relating to them in a personal way. Expect uncensored stories, plenty of laughs and tips and tricks to inspire you on your own journey. Now, let's go balls deep. It's a bit balmy this morning. The air conditioner's not working in the apartment. We, we tried fixing it, but not to any avail. But, uh, mate, we've got another great guest here today. Paul Kennedy, welcome to the Dawson D Show. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks for that uh, very generous introduction. <laughs> As everyone knows, who's a regular listener, we like to record the introduction a bit uh, a bit after the show. So we I feel PK. Oh, I assume it's very good. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> good, only, only the best. Mate, your book, Funky Town. Yep. Tell us a bit about that, because basically that's the new news at the moment for you. Yep. What is the book about? And share us a little bit about, I guess... I'm looking forward to talking about a few stories that I've kind of read online about in the book. Yep. I'll start with the title because I guess your audience is maybe spread all over the country, all over the world, whatever. Um, Thanks, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you've been recording overseas as well, but Funky Town is a reference to Frankston, which is my home suburb. Actually, Frankston is, was on the urban sprawl when we were growing up, but now it's sort of heavy suburbia. But it's an hour away from Melbourne, Victoria. And yeah, Frankston was sort of like a, a world with the borders. And I, I sort of lived in that world. So I'm from a suburb called Seaford next to Frankston. But my sister used to call it Funky Town. It's got all these different names. But um, the book is about the one year, 1993, that I spent in my last year of high school trying to sort of reach manhood in the way that I saw it and, uh, you know, making mistakes along the way. And and also uh, it was a really terrifying time for everyone at, at that period in 1993. There was a serial killer in Frankston. So, yeah, my memories are really vivid. I had a journal at the time, so I went back into that 12 months and viewed life as a 17-year-old with the small amount of wisdom that I have now looking back. Yeah. yeah. And what was that like revisiting it? Was it challenging or was it exciting? We were just chatting off air about footy. There's a lot of young kids at our footy club. They're yeah. 16, 17 going through school. And we're all, the older boys are living, reliving yeah. our youth through them. So, yeah, yeah. how was that? 
It was really good. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes through that year. I sort of looked back and thought uh, about things I could have done differently. But mainly it was it was exciting and it was really satisfying to look yep. back and answer some questions that I've had for a long time. Number one question being, why did I, you know, champion this this type of uh, masculinity at, mm-hmm. at the age of seventeen, drinking a lot, uh, binge drinking, and getting into fights and pretending that I was really comfortable with that and wearing that mask of bravado? Why did I do that when I had such a great upbringing? So that was a key question, mm. and the, the answer really is that I was uh, I was seeking new role models. You know, d- despite the fact that my dad was uh, and my mum were, were perfect role models, mm. I was looking for something else. I wanted to fit in with my local male elders, which were only, you know, I was, they were only a couple of years older than me, but mm. I wanted to be like them and was masking all of this sort of emotional suppression. Yeah. And uh, that's something that I learned about while I was writing. I sort of went on that little journey of discovery. Yeah. There's a big part of that, just the footy culture. Yeah, yeah. So I was um, at 15. Back then, the, the senior setup was that after the under-15s in football, you'd go into the under-17s and they were the thirds at the local footy club. Yeah. So straight away, you're in. This is Seaford Footy Club? Yeah. 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 So straight away, you're into this culture of hard drinking and, as I said, you know, violence, sexism and all of those things. It did have... It wasn't like I was being tortured either. I threw myself head first. I wanted to be like my brother. I wanted to be like all of his mates. I enjoyed doing that, mm. but it was problematic as well because, uh, you know, I had aspirations to do other things. I had a, a really good teacher, a bunch of good teachers at the local high school who were sort of fostering my burgeoning love of reading and writing, yep. one teacher in particular. Yeah, so I had this sort of tug of war like most people do when mm. they're 17 and, you know, trying to work things yeah. out and lacking direction. But, yeah, and the, the biggest feedback there was from people reading the book was that they can see themselves in the story. So I guess they're all common themes. And, and around relationships, it was, you know, I was, I was trying to be part of this this um, culture of, you know, having sex for the first time and, yep. you know, copying what the older guys are talking about, mm. which is, um, you know, bragging about sexual conquest. And, and really all I wanted to do was fall in love. So yeah. that was something that I, I reflected on for a lot of years and yeah. wrote about in the book. Yeah, talked about fitting in and trying to, I guess, be one of the boys. Yeah. I know, like, I can so relate to that. I'm sure you can too. But is it true that you got expelled? Is that what I read too? Like, yeah. that, that's part of the story as well. Like, because yeah. you've you've come out the other side, you've created a successful career in the industry that you wanted to as well, mm. in writing and yep. journalism and media. But you can look back now and you actually got expelled. Like, you've done... Yeah. Like, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, so it was the night before... He's a bad boy. <laughs> it was the night before muck-up day. So year 12 was almost finished oh, for me. so you're done. Yeah, but I had to do exams. But yeah, myself and two other blokes broke into the school gym. We got, we got really drunk the night before. Wanted to go to school and didn't want to go to bed, which is a big problem for me. I never Once I drank, I never really wanted to go home. I just wanted the night to keep going, mm. even though sometimes, I, often, I couldn't remember what the night was but we went to the school hall and we wanted to just kill time before muck up day which was in about three hours so we got there about three o'clock <laughs> and uh broke into the school hall to play basketball and uh get out the mini tram and do some slam dunks and yeah there was a silent alarm the police turned up threw us in handcuffs and i ended up in the chelsea lockup so yeah we, we i got interviewed by the police after that that morning had to go back to school and uh, the principal expelled me after that, quite rightly. Uh, so you didn't get to complete the exams? I had to go to another school to do the exams. Yeah, so I went to Mordiak, Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, you know, 
it was very confronting the indignity of going back to school after messing up i'd let down all of the people that were helping in my life you know my mum and dad first and foremost but my teachers there were other really good adults that were, mm. that were trying to help me from a little bit of as one of the teachers described just a little bit of self-destruction yeah so i let down a lot of people and that was that was really confronting yeah. so yeah i left high school did the exams my marks weren't that great i never wanted to go to uni anyway I was really, at that point, sort of finished with school. Yeah, and, and then after that I went and I was working as a labourer. I was actually on the dole for a while after high school and yep. um, working as a labourer for some sort of cashies. And then I was playing at the Fitzroy Reserves at the time. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, and feeling lost for a, maybe another year after yeah. that, yeah. Just before we dive into that part of your life, at that time when you got expelled, you mentioned your parents were good role models. Mm. So what, what did they do firstly and what was their reaction at the time and how did they yeah. treat you? How did they deal with it? Well, my mum and dad were really good. They were um, they were patient every yep. time and clearly disappointed every time that I would let them down. You know, I, I went right through high school and mum was, and even primary school, mum was always getting called up to the office for for me getting in trouble. In the early days, you know, she would have to go up and answer to the principal over, mm. you know, allegations that I was bullying other kids. So, I, and actually, the reason I remember most of this is that I've got, letters that were sent home from the yeah <laughs> yeah so um you know mum in that instance in primary school was really disappointed and would explain to me that you have to treat people like you want to be treated yourself and mm-hmm. so i don't think that bullying lasted very long at all but yeah i was a, i was a um, a kid who dominated the classroom i was probably too loud and i was disrespectful to teachers that that i didn't think deserved my respect okay in hindsight you know it's, it's very <laughs> differently but i got along well with some other teachers yeah and you know i i loved some class particularly english and literature and i had a legal studies teacher so i was a very inconsistent student so mum had to deal with a lot of that dad was always um usually working in the afternoon he, he drove a truck and so mum it was left for mum to um to clean up that mess but yeah they, they were really patient they used to talk to me just about being better and yeah, I don't remember any screaming matches or anything. They never um, were really heavy-handed with me, but in a way, that was the worst. It was much more powerful. For yeah, for sure. To be disappointed in me because I always, you know, wanted their approval. Yeah, like most kids. Yeah. What uh, I know a lot of our listeners, and it's based on like what we are trying to create with the mission stuff. But mm. younger people feeling lost. Can you remember what the feeling lost feels like? Yeah. Like what? What exactly did you feel? Because I think everyone's is different. Like. Yeah. Some people have incredible aspirations, big goals, big dreams, so they might feel lost when they're in the middle, but someone might be a bit lower and not have as big a goals, but yeah. feeling lost might not might just be not be able to get out of bed. I don't know. Like, what was your feeling lost? Yeah. Well, it was, um, I don't know, I felt, probably felt a bit lonely, particularly when I couldn't make any connections to girls. Yeah. I, I, for the life of me, I couldn't talk to girls. And so... Um, Neither can we. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it can be difficult. You know, so that's why I drank. But yeah, okay. That's a big reason why, why I was a binge drinker. And that was bad for me because when I was when I was binge drinking, I was uh, trying to win some sort of approval from my mates for, you know, drinking harder than anyone else. And Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was a purely just a mask of trying to suppress my insecurities around girls. So, yeah, I, I remember feeling a bit lonely in that regard. And not being able to talk to anyone about that. As, as I look back now, I think, well, I should have had that discussion with mum and dad, but never wanted to talk about relationships with them. Yeah. I didn't want to really expose myself as vulnerable to my mates. Although we were pretty honest about most things. I, had a, I was lucky to have a best mate called Adam. And we would talk about it yeah. you know, at that surface level. 
Yeah, so probably a bit of loneliness. And it, that was all around trying to find love and wondering whether gotcha. anyone would ever love me. And it's a funny stage. Yeah, well, it's, it's, really... it's very normal. You know, I have examined what we now call toxic masculinity. Mm. And uh, the best book that I've, that I've come across that, that details that was uh, by an American journalist who went and interviewed all of these students from age 16 to 23, boys and young men. And she defines toxic masculinity best way that I've heard it with three pillars one is emotional suppression yep one is is the disparagement of the feminine or perceived feminine and that is uh, and the third one is bragging about sexual conquest okay you know real or imagined so for me the emotional suppression all, all three ring true but the emotional suppression was was a big one so you know if I was able to talk about uh, my, my insecurities and, and not being able to to connect with girls in, in a way and, and you know talk to them that would have been helpful for me yeah yeah it's, it's very unhelpful i think for for boys and young men or anyone indeed to suppress their emotions to a level where they have to get around doing other things just to hide their insecurities yeah i think it's normal yeah but i think it's you know it's, it, it's worth trying to find a better way i actually do relate to those three pillars you mentioned i think yeah. back a few years ago all three like yeah. they all ring true to me so yeah. and you think i think this is where it's tough as guys like you hear toxic masculinity you haven't heard it defined yeah. so you assume you're not part of it or yeah. don't have it but putting your hand up and saying well maybe i was or maybe i am like it's yeah. it's a tough yeah. thing to do so yeah well to- toxic masculinity is a um is a term i haven't used in the book because yeah. it wasn't around in 93 and i'm sort of writing from the through the eyes gotcha, of a 17 yeah. year old so but it, you know i prefer in the book to describe it as boys becoming men yeah and i would say that the seaford football club when i landed there was problematic for me as a teenager okay and the way i was so but in the also, in the book was that year I was playing for the, what they called then the Southern Stingrays, now Dandenong Stingrays. Yep. And that competition was only in its second year. And I was uh, playing for them, trying to get drafted. But the coach at the time, Greg Hutchison, I thought was a terrific coach. There was nothing toxic. In fact, it was the opposite of what I would say is toxic masculinity. Yeah, okay. It was this joyful experience of 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds, some 16-year-olds, enjoying each other's company and doing what they what they love to do i was very careful to explain what it's like in the in the change rooms before games what it's like being out on the fields in that place where you, where time stops yeah and yep, you know, don't 100%. worry about what's going to come or what's what has been you just live in the moment and for me that was a there was something close to elation or it, it was elation there was a state of elation and and pure joy so um nothing about my experience at the stingrays and and everyone's got different experiences within a team but nothing about my experience was uh, negative do you try and recreate that feeling you just described at Seaford now as you coach these young yeah. guys at that same age what have you learned from that time period and moving through it to how you implement it in your coaching now yeah well I, I coach um I coach a couple of junior teams so last year I coached an under 15s team and a school team yep the one thing that I'm really careful to talk to the players about is fear of failure. Okay. And sort of part of my uh, self-destruction through that year, now that I look back, was that I, I was drinking before games. So I was um, on a couple of occasions, not, not all the time, but uh, there was one particular one. We were playing at Seymour, which was actually where I was born. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> not that that had anything to do with it, but it was, <laughs> I played a really good game. Yeah. But I was yep. really drunk the night before, so I was playing hungover. That was, 
you know, look back and think, wow, why, why did I do that? But it was because I was starting to fear failure. You know, it's very common with yeah. most people. I was uh, so if I was drunk the night before, there was an excuse for me if I didn't, if yeah. I didn't play well. I relate or, again. Or, or more broadly, through the year, if I was a, a guy who went out and partied on the weekends and I didn't get drafted, well, that was the reason. You know, yeah, because I was probably too cool to to give it my all. So, and even in a really small way, I explained to my players. If you don't go for the ball because you're worried about your man beating you in that one-on-one contest, then that in itself is a fear of failure. So once you recognise it, once again as a coach, I just I tell players that it's okay to to have that fear, but you know should never be an excuse for taking shortcuts. Yep. You'll feel much better if you do everything you possibly can yeah. to win the contest, to get drafted, or whatever you want to do. So that's part of it is recognising that fear of failure. I think that probably frees up. Um, athletes and the other part is that you need to always be aware of creating that environment where uh, there's not too much criticism of teammates and and all that that uh, yeah. type of ne- negative uh, some people call it banter yeah so, yeah of yeah. course and I've taken that from other coaches I'm not I'm not a, a, an expert coaching but I read a lot of books you know the Rod McQueen book about his great Wallabies team mm. I, that was pretty influential when yeah. I started coaching I read that book and I read you know oh, probably a hundred others but McQueen's whole aim was to create a fun and challenging environment. So yep. make sure that people are enjoying themselves and they'll perform better, but also make sure you keep raising the raising the bar so that they can uh, be better than they've ever been before. I love it. Did that fear of failure transition into your media career at all? Like, can you share with us that first time on TV, that first morning <laughs> show? Can you remember that? Uh, really? like, yeah, I can. I can. I remember the yeah, first. Were you nervous? Like, yeah, always, always nervous. I never really had it that much with. Yeah. With um, journalism, yeah. Well, I'm trying to think of my my first live cross was in Papua New Guinea. Wow. So I was standing on a roof in Port Moresby covering the Tampa crisis, and it, I remember it clearly. It was the same night that after my first live cross, I went down into the hotel room, and um, the twin towers were wow. were attacked. So um, yeah, so it was 2001, obviously. Yeah, first time I've hosted things. Always always nervous i get a dry mouth so that's why, how i know that i'm nervous but i don't always have maybe a fear of fear of failure with with yeah. everything i try but i don't think it's as debilitating as what it was back then however yeah. in writing this book i had to overcome it so for me there was some symmetry there here i was writing about fear of failure and the whole time it's my first memoir might be my last but it's definitely the first time i've, I've written about myself in that way so yeah constantly i had this had this conversation with myself about um who cares who wants to read about read about me yeah. is this really important am i a good enough writer to to make it a, a compelling book yeah so well, did you it's tell us recently you've sold ten thousand copies i think yeah i haven't seen the numbers lately yeah. but i think it's if it hasn't reached that yeah i would say it will reach yeah, that wow. yeah, yeah so it's, it's been successful yeah. but yeah I, I overcame it i i had you know, I always have conversations with myself, yeah. and and I and I thought, well, you know what, the stuff that I'm writing about in the book, because I didn't get drafted, I didn't have a, what I would call a a glittering football career, and that's all I wanted to do. So yeah, that didn't happen for me, and and that's 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 okay. If, if that happened, I might not have been a journalist. So I'm happy. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I'm happy with what I've done. But also, I am yeah really pleased that I said to myself while writing the book, I'm cutting no corners here. Yeah. 
and if it flops, it flops. But I, I'm not going to have this fear of failure get in the way of this particular project. So, oh, wow. I love it. So, yeah, it's still there, and it'll be there. Next project I do, next book I write, it'll be there, but... And that's okay. Like, yeah. yeah, it's natural, it's, isn't it? It sort of drives yeah. drives me in a way as well. So, did you have ambition to go into journalism, or how did that come about? How yeah. did you find yourself? I know you said at school you were quite good at writing. Uh, but English, I was okay at. Yeah, and, and uh, in Funky Town, I talk about Mrs. Mack, who was my literature teacher. Okay. Shout she, out, yeah, yeah <laughs> big time. She, um, but uh, the other teachers were terrific as well, and yeah, so I really wanted to be. A, a writer, I guess, and that came after Mrs. Mack gave me this book called I Heard the Owl Call My Name. Okay. Which, in reading that, first time I've read for, for enjoyment. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. not as a school. And I like reading, but I always read school text and yeah. whatever they gave me. But I Heard the Owl Call My Name, Mrs. Mack gave me that. It was about a, um, a terminally ill minister who goes to spend time in a very remote village okay. in uh, British Columbia. And so something that I wouldn't naturally yeah. uh, pick up. But the feeling I had when I read that was was um, the closest thing I'd had to playing football. I just wow. was, I had a sense of electricity when I read the t- different uh, passages by Margaret Craven. Yeah, the, so the book touched me in a way that it was, mm. it was very meaningful. So that really enhanced my enjoyment of reading, which is I've had ever since. And also, I, I started to fantasise about being a writer. And then Mrs. Mack suggested that I maybe go for a cadetship after after high school. And I hadn't heard of a cadetship, didn't know what it was. But so <laughs> they were around then, and yep. uh, I guess they possibly still are, usually for university graduates. But yeah, my, the, the roots of my um, journalism career were in that tumultuous year, even though I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't actually go to university? No, so I got into labouring after that. So I was playing Fitzroy in the yeah. reserves for, on a sub list. But I, I asked that because I love that, because there's always other pathways. Yeah, well, I went for a... I went for. I hope that's still true. I um, because I went for a cadetship the end of the year after I got expelled. And I didn't tell them about getting expelled. Uh, the Herald Sun, um, Herald and Weekly Times. But I got close on the on the strength of my written test and my general knowledge. They said was some of the worst because you have to go for a cadetship. You write a story based on the facts they give you. Yep. And then that you answer general knowledge current affairs questions. And they said that my writing was really good, but my general knowledge was the worst of one of the worst I've ever seen. So <laughs> because I just wasn't, you know, I just used to read about football, Footy. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, or, or some fictions, yeah. But anyway, I got down to I got an interview stage, and that was I think there were twelve of us, but there were only six cadetships, so I missed out on the cadetship. Mustn't have been great in the interview, but what I did do, I used that nine months later when I got sick of labouring and wanted to do something with my life, I started to write letters to the Herald and Weekly Times saying, I just missed out on cadetship. Is there any way I can get some sort of work? Because uh, newsrooms, they probably still got them. They call, I think they probably call them newsroom assistants, but yep. they were called copy boys back then. So eventually, after I wrote about three letters and they got annoyed with me writing <laughs> those letters, they gave me a job as a copy boy. So that's how I learned. Uh, initially, I spent yeah, wow. 12 months at the Herald and Weekly Times and really fell head over heels in love with the newsroom. Just loved it. It reminds, always reminds me when I watched the, the movie The Breakfast Club where the cleaner says, here's the eyes and ears of the institution. <laughs> That's how I felt. You know, I was yeah. the eyes and ears of um, the Herald and Weekly Times, yeah. this lowly copy boy. Yeah. I just sucked in and lapped up everything about that place for a year. Wrote a couple of stories. The first ever byline was in the car section. And I wrote it about a mate who used to live up the street in Seaford about his, his uh, first Holden. 
and how, so that was 1994 or five when I wrote the story. It was about all these 70s cars that, that young blokes are, are buying for their first cars. And I had one as well. Anyway, <laughs> Speaking uh, and from, from experience. Yeah, yeah, and from there I went to um, do a cadetship at Leader Newspapers, which I was once again really lucky. I've been lucky all the way. Yeah. And I was lucky to, wow. to come across some great mentors um, there. Paul Amy was a, oh, he's a, he's a great he's an bloke. excellent journalist, yeah. and he was my senior journalist. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, he taught me everything I knew at that stage. And I just remember Paul like working in the VFL, always in the rooms, like getting, yeah. getting every gossip. and Sensational. And the relationships. Yeah. I've never seen someone know so many people. Yeah, but, yeah, he was a gun. So, as you can see, I was, I was really lucky because I sat next to him. He was most the local papers. He had a senior journalist and a cadet, usually. Yeah. That was the, the two writers. So yeah, covered everything, and and uh, as part of that, as a cadetship, I covered the sexual um, abuse by clergy in um, big story that erupted in Oakley and all across Melbourne, and eventually I came back to that story when I was at Channel Nine, and uh, that was my first book. Uh, oh, okay. So yeah, I did the story in '96 about you know this big awakening, I guess, or uncovering of the, the sexual abuse by one priest and then other priests. And it was 2010, some 14 years later, that I wrote a book with Chrissy Foster called Hell on the Way to Heaven. And wow. uh, that was my first book. Yeah, wow. Hmm. Well, well, you say you're lucky, but at the same time, I wonder out of the other five people that went for yeah. the role, like, I wonder how many of them actually wrote in or wrote yeah. in three times. So there is the element of luck, but at the same time, you're proactive and you persevered. And I think it's just a really great yeah. story and learning yeah it's a, i've got to say though that when i say i'm lucky i would include my whole upbringing i was lucky to <laughs> yeah be, yeah i was lucky to be born into a family where i had two hard-working generous loving parents yeah and i was lucky that i had great teachers along the way when i did fail or, or you know stuffed up i always had that support in my life yeah you know so I was, yeah and I, I had the lessons from my mum and dad to keep going get get back up keep trying yeah you know be respectful of people and all yeah, the rest yeah. Of it. so yeah that was that was why i was lucky really yeah um some people aren't lucky and to have all of that true and they st- they can still make a lot you know make a great success of their lives and live happy lives but yeah i have um, to quickly ask yeah how's the response been from everyone on the peninsula all your friends like all your connection to the media and journalism mm. like especially from down in that area reading the book yeah like i'm sure a lot of them could relate or felt like well, shit. They, they knew the place. Yeah, they know the place. Yeah. They remember like, that awful time at yeah. 93. I was that young fella. Like, I was the same. You know, yeah. I'm sure you've had a lot of that. It's happened everywhere. And um, <laughs> yeah, big, big time in Frankston and the peninsula. But um, also all over Australia, I've got notes from people saying, oh, it feels, yeah. feels like Funky Town was, you know, Swan Hill. Yeah, or, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Or everything. So. They, they are some really common themes for 17-year-olds, and I think that's why. Yeah, Frankston people have, have enjoyed looking back, some not so much, yeah. if they've gone through those, those difficult times. And there was some trauma there as well. So, mm, for sure. Yeah. But the, the one example I can give you is I did an interview on ABC about the book, my first TV interview, and I spoke openly about you know that mask of bravado that we've been talking about. I got a message on Facebook by uh, from a guy who was the toughest bloke in Frankston, always in fights. Yep. You know, I never saw him lose one of those fights. He was a real intimidator, you know, and, and just a lo- lovely guy too. I really, really liked his company, and he's he's a great man as far as I'm concerned. But he was lost, and he was right in the whirlwind of violence, 
at okay. the Frankston pubs every weekend. And his message to me was, thank God you're, um, you're able to talk about this. I felt exactly the same way as you did. We were boys in a man's body and we had no direction at that time. So, That's powerful. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. So that was good to hear from him because, yeah, you, you, you might see someone acting out and you know displaying that sort of macho behaviour and you've got mm. to understand that most of us aren't like that that's just the way that we we think yeah. we need to behave yeah yeah i think we got to get paul back on the podcast yeah yeah i've got <laughs> i've got a million questions but we're, we are running out of time so final question how does the listener get a copy of your book i know it's in all good bookstores oh but... yeah you go to the bookstores i think is my it's in the window yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can buy it online of course but yeah. uh, if you've got a like a bookshop i i I suggest you go and support your local yeah. bookshop. You know, if you're short of money because petrol is two dollars uh, nineteen at the moment. <laughs> Sorry to make you drive up here. Uh, <laughs> no, if, if, if you're uh, if the cost of living is uh, forcing you not to buy those leisure items like books, then uh, go to your local library and support yeah. your local library as well. So, um, awesome. And social yeah. media. Uh, on Twitter or yeah, I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet that much. But yeah. yeah, Paul W Kennedy and. Facebook, social media, Instagram, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Paul Kennedy Stories I'm yeah. on, so okay. on Perfect. Facebook. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Instagram, I'm not even sure what my handle is. I've... No, we'll put it in for you, don't worry. <laughs> we'll, we'll, that's where we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll awesome, edit. Mate. Yeah, but, but thank you. Mate. I'm always free to come back. Sorry I'm uh, mate, short on time. Mate, it's I'm fine. Doing... We appreciate you making the effort, to mate, be honest. It's yeah. been awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. So uh, we'll do a part two soon, I think, yeah. and uh, we'll type yeah. some of those loose ends. Can I say congratulations on so you're i don't want to age you for your audience if you want to keep it a secret but you're young guys you know I'm, I'm an old guy so for you to be talking about these issues is really important that, that makes a connection to other, other young people and Thanks, uh yeah so and we don't all, all have to be trapped in those those, those pillars of masculinity mm. that have been well defined by other people. So yeah, keep up the appreciate good work. It. Thanks, yeah. mate. Yeah. yeah, awesome telling those good stories. That's it. Really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. D, wasn't that episode just awesome? Oh, mate, I got so much out of it. I'm sure you did too. And of course, thank you to everyone who listened. Guys, if you haven't already, go and subscribe to the podcast over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For sure. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple. It goes such a long way to helping the show. And of course, you have your chance to get a shout-out. Don't forget to go and follow us over on Instagram as well. What's the Instagram, D? It's at D underscore. D-O-S-A-N-D-D underscore. See you next week. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you in the next episode.